be seated. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just about in the middle of the Bible, past Psalms and Proverbs. You have Psalms, big book, Proverbs, fairly big book, and then you have Ecclesiastes. And have it open there to chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is an autobiographical poem, a crying voice from about 900 years before Christ. The author takes us into his confidence with some very strong self-confessions. Our text is a prologue, really, to the entire book. Now, listen very carefully. Alert, alert. What's going to follow here is going to show sinful man's view of the world according to his own logic. This is a very negative, dark text. But there's light at the end. There's an uplifting part that we'll notice as we move through this text. So let me read then to you verses 1 through 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind on it. On circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after This evening, you're going to hear Happy New Year over and over and over. Yet really, is there ever a new year? The author here seems to have never had a happy new year because he had faced life realistically. For many years, he had experienced boredom and disappointments and frustrations, trudging through a monotonous uh, wasteland of minutes and hours and days and months. As we look to 2024, let's be honest with ourselves, we are going to find the same kinds of things, the same workplace duties, the same household chores. Uh, the same raising of children, the same homework, the same meetings, the same commitments, the same enduring traffic, the same balancing our finances, and the same hours and hours of television that we watch constantly. 
Robert Ricker has said that the author writes with a, a kind of brutal honesty and unsentimental clarity that even today few would dare to express in a religious book. His observations are really the conclusions that life itself forces upon us if we have the stomach for the truth. Well, who was the author of this book? He introduces himself in verse 1 with the words of the preacher. The word preacher refers to, in the Hebrew, refers to anybody who gathers an assembly together, speaker at an assembly, or even a teacher. The New International Version translates the words of the teacher. But before us in the ESV, which I'm using, <clears throat> excuse me, the words of the preacher. But that doesn't tell us exactly who he is. Well, then he does give us some helpful information. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. And so most Bible scholars agree that this author was Solomon, King Solomon himself. His early years as a king were, were uh, years of being rich, powerful, um, famous, wise, very active in all kinds of things in his life, God-fearing. The later part of his stage of life, well, things changed. He strayed away from the Lord and became involved in evil pursuits and evil pleasures and evil ambitions. And this eventually led him to write the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly the text before us this morning. When we come to verse 2, we have the introduction. Think of watching a stage play up here, and all of a sudden the curtain rises, and we hear a voice of anguish and agony, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is he talking about? What do we mean by vanity? Well, it's used twice, a strong exclamation. It means emptiness, no meaning, useless, nothing there. As you open your Christmas gifts this past week, can you imagine getting a gift beautifully wrapped, pretty ribbon around it? You're excited. People seem excited to have you open it up. And so there you go. Take the ribbon off. Get a pair of scissors. Cut the scotch tape. Open it up. And there's nothing in there. That's what Solomon is saying about life. If you go to the logical conclusion of the sinful, rebellious man, who does not follow the ways of the Lord. Psalm 90, verses 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. What Solomon is saying here is, when you get right down to it, life is absurd, ridiculous, frustrating. And he understands that because he himself experienced this. This is a testimony that he is giving in these first verses of Ecclesiastes. Now, in verse 3, he asks an important question. What does man gain by all the toil of which he toils? Under the sun. The phrase under the sun means his daily life. The word gain is a Hebrew business term for money earned by hard work. Therefore, we have the word toil 
and toils. Over in chapter 2, verse 11, Solomon writes, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Have you ever gone to work or dealt with your house problems? <laughs> you think, wow, it seems like I've been through this before. This never ends. The French atheist philosopher Camus said, Life is nothing but a bad joke. At least he was honest. Michael Eaton has written, This purposelessness is no mere academic stance, but a hideous reality that permeates the consciousness of the whole of society and gnaws away mercilessly of the human soul. So in asking this question in verse 3, Solomon only sees the same monotony of existence, the same tedious routines. And again in that second chapter, at verse number 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Aren't there times when you can identify with what Psalm is writing here? Now, to undergird what he says, in verses 4 through 11, through the rest of our text, he gives us several illustrations. And the first illustration is in verse 4. The same people. The same people. A generation goes and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. A generation is a group of people born living together at a particularly unique time. Now, I'm going to mention some of these things. I don't think there's any generation Y. Maybe there has been. I can't, I can't remember it. But we know there's the, the greatest generation from World War II. Uh, there was the uh, baby boom generation. There has been uh, Generation X and Generation Z. And the millennials, and today somebody even says that the generation today is the degeneration, capital D, small e. Each of these appears to have made progress, but only are like the earth which remains forever. The earth, about the same. Generations are really the same. Interestingly, the Hebrew participle is used in this verse. A generation is coming, is going. A generation is coming. But the earth is remaining forever. Each generation seems to change, but we're better than the one that came before us. Surely we're better than people who lived 100 years ago. But really, there is no generation gap because we have the same people over and over. Someone has written this, this little clever poem. Each generation soon has passed, so sure at first, so sad at last. As ranks of youth successive rise, each thinks we are supremely wise. They each a lot more knowledge know, and yet a bit less wisdom show. The same sins, the same blunders, the same stupidities, the same discouragements, the same selfishness, the same 
pride, the same wasted time, the same frustrations. And you look at Bi- in the Bible, there's different characters appear in the Old Testament and New Testament. You find they are dealing with things that we are dealing with. The same people. And then in verses 5 through 7, he uses the illustration of some natural elements, and he uses three of them. The first is in verse 5. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. We're very aware of the fact in the morning, we say, the sun rises, and then the sun sets. What happens the next day? The sun rises, the sun sets. Over and over and over. Interestingly, it says here, uh, it hastens to the place where it rises. And the idea is almost of a, of a panting, of a, an ex, ex, uh, exertion. Yes, even the sun has to say to itself, well, time to get up, go this way, around here, back again, over and over and over. Each new day, here it comes again. Then he uses the illustration of the wind in verse number 6. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. Probably Solomon didn't mention east and west because implied in the rising of the, in the setting of the sun. But the idea here is that um, the wind is basically the same thing. We look at the weather forecast on, the, on television and we see uh, the jet stream. We see the wind's coming up from the north. It's going to come from the southeast. There's a strong wind coming from Canada. And yet the wind constantly, although it's always moving around, it always just seems to go back to the same place. It stops for a while. And boo, here it comes again, over and over and over. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It returns with more of the same weariness, as it were, the same Currents turn back on the same paths, always repeating itself. And the third illustration in verses 5 to 7 is verse 7. The streams. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Notice the word sea is used here. It's probably a good word because Solomon had been unacquainted with what we think of as the oceans, the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and so forth. So sea is a good translation here. Same principle as the sun and the wind. Think of a stream coming down through, through the land, and where does it go? Like the Rogue River eventually empties into the Pacific Ocean or a sea. But the sea does not get filled, does it? Because the sea then has condensation, and the condensation goes up into the atmosphere, comes clouds, the clouds turn to rain, to snow, and it comes down on the land, goes into the streams, and the streams then go back into the sea, condensation, clouds, rain, snow, back and forth, back and forth. Now, uh, since Solomon's day, the scientists have given a term to that. It's called the hydrological cycle. But Solomon's point, once again, a repetition of itself in the same direction to the same end. So whether you're talking about the sun or the wind or the stream, just round and round and round and round like a little mouse in a cave. That's life, if you're logical, apart from God. 
And that's what Solomon is trying to say here. Speaking of the streams, there was a certain self-centered, self-indulgent European dignitary who once looking at a particular stream said, Oh, that river. It runs over and over and over again, on and on. I am so weary of it. Even this guy got weary of the stream just being the same thing. If you've ever looked at the water, you know, here it is, comes the water, here it comes, over and over and over again. Solomon is saying man's mind becomes restless in his pursuits, never satisfied or content. But having given some particulars, with these illustrations especially, he now speaks in more general words. Now this third point, I struggle with what to call it. We had the same people, the same natural elements, the same what in verses 8 through 11. I first came up with dissatisfactions. I finally settled on the same frustrations, but I'm not sure that is really the best word. But let's look at the frustrations expressed here in verses 8 through 11. First of all, verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with with hearing. Interesting, the phrase all things is literally in the Hebrew all words, but the thing certainly captures the idea of weariness, of fatiguing hard labor, restless activity. A satisfactory conclusion is never reached. Same toil, always to begin again. Human language can't exhaust it. No matter how much the eye sees or ear hears, people never get what they want. Life is a series of disappointments of never completely satisfied accomplishments from the moment of birth through life to death. Let's look at verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. And you say, well, wait a minute now. What about inventions? of all the inventions men have made. They really are only imitations which never carry people out of their meaningless circles. Wonderful they are. We still face the same problems. Knowledge grows, but for what ultimate purpose? For what ultimate meaning? That's what Solomon is trying to get across here in these verses. If you look at the last phrase in verse 9, I'm sure you've heard of this before, there is nothing new under the sun. There really isn't. Uh, I ran across a, f- a fellow back in ancient history named Tatianus. And he said of the ancient Greeks who were known for their advanced civilization and their pride in it, For shame, do not call your accomplishments inventions, which are but imitation." Some of you years ago might remember a Moody Institute of Science film called The Prior Claim. And the idea of it is that God has already built into his creation things that are waiting for man to discover them and, and to use them. So, for example, uh, bear and mouse traps, not new. Uh, think of the uh, Venus flytrap, with six, it's six triggers. Uh, the cowboy lariat. Nothing new there, a chameleon's tongue does kind of the same thing. What about infrared sniper scopes? 
Well, rattlesnakes have something like that in their detection abilities. What about helicopters? Think of the bosun bird who cannot walk properly, but he can go up and down just like that. Airplanes themselves, I remember seeing as a young boy a, a film a long time ago about the Wright brothers, I believe it was, and uh, you saw uh, one of them standing by the side of a, uh, on a cliff by the side of an ocean, and uh, he's looking at these birds flying. And that was inspiration to him of how do the birds fly? How can we make something so that we can fly? God already has created the birds. And then one more. What about computers? Aha! Now there's a man-made wonderful tool that we've invented. Well, what's up here inside your head? A computer. A God-created computer. It's amazing. It's retention of information and so forth. So, there really is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Marcus Aurelius, a Roman Empire emperor and um, Stoic philosopher, he said, They that come after us will see nothing new, and they who went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. That which is observable to us, which seems to be new, is really illusory. It's really not as new as we might think it to be. Any innovations proved to be just different ways of doing what already has been done centuries earlier. People are the same, doing the same things. And then our last verse of our text, verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after My father passed away over 60 years ago. My mother's passed away over 30 years ago or so. I think of them fairly frequently, but not that often. They kind of fade away from my memory. I'm busy with other things, and they fade away. I hardly ever think of my grandparents. I never knew my um, maternal grandfather, but I have remembers my, my paternal grandfather, but... Uh, you know, I, they're kind of just fading away. We visit cemeteries, and we look down at the headstone, and then we be, remember who they were, and we pay knowledge to them. But by and large, pretty much people of the past disappear. Think of famous celebrities in films and sports. Who won the World Series three years ago? Quick, come on, who, who won it? Well, I kind of put it out. Who was the most valuable player in the World Series last year? Well, let's see, who, who would play? You know, it's so easy for us to forget these things who have their moment, their 50 moments of fame, and then uh, they are gone. A French proverb says, the more things change, the more they turn out to be the same. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, Came to church today hoping to get some inspiration for the coming year. What a dark, negative passage this is. Someone has termed it dour and sour. Others have used the term gloomy. Nature reveals 
reveals an eternal monotony with ceaseless motion, no lasting progress. And that's the way human experiences, we're never satisfied. So this leads us to a couple of questions we need to ask. Number one, if everything is an endless cycle, how can man break out of that circle into a state that leads somewhere? Well, thankfully, also in Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives the answer to that question. He comes out at the end of his book in the right place because he was driven to find his rest in God himself, the one that he had momentarily forsaken. And now he realizes he must come back to the God who loved him. This is the good news in Ecclesiastes. Our frailties, our vanities should lead us to the only one who can satisfy the needs of our heart. It should lead us to the only one who escaped that vicious circle. That, of course, was Jesus Christ himself. And through Jesus, he tr- gives us truly new things. Now, what do we mean by that, new things? Well, we begin with our conversion, whether you were a youngster, whether you were a teenager, later in life. The Lord graciously put inside you the beginning of a new nature. The old nature is still there, but this new nature is designed to grow and to overcome the old nature. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the Lord enables us to have that new, new birth by his grace. But he doesn't leave it there. We move on to the development of our new nature. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. If you're a believer, you have been given the privilege of having a new nature within you that most people in the world do not have. And you're enabled to live for God's glory. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We don't live in the time of the old covenant. We live in the time of the new covenant. And we are enabled to have many more blessings and able to serve the Lord in ways that the Old Testament saints uh, could not. And so we, our Christian life has to do with growing in our new nature. The year ahead of us, I hope you'll set that as a resolution to grow in your new nature, to overcome the old remnants of the old nature that still are within each of us. And of course, then ultimately, what do we have? The new heavens and the new earth. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a new hope that is right there. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be a crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As you go through the book of Ecclesiastes, I won't take the time to read them, but I have them in front of me here. Various phrases in which he makes reference to God. There are about uh, uh, 40 times. He uses the word God 40 times in the book. And, of course, it ultimately leads to the end of his book. Turn to that last chapter, the last couple of verses there of Ecclesiastes, and you'll find where Solomon ends up. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every day deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see that word fear, it gives you the impression, well, we have to cower before God. Everything we do, oh, watch. I don't want to, I don't want to displease God. But, oh, God might strike me dead. That's not meaning of the Hebrew word. The full meaning is faith, trust, fearing him so much that you will submit to him as your Lord and your Savior. To put it in the words of the old hymn, trust and obey. That's what he's saying here at the end. But there's one more big question we have to deal with before we bring this to a conclusion. You might have been thinking to yourself, there's no mention of Jesus Christ in this book. Where's the New Testament gospel as we usually think of it? That Jesus Christ came, gave his life, and he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and he's coming back again. Where, where's that? Well, it's at this point, a book like Ecclesiastes and other passages like this, you need to not focus so much on the trees that you miss the forest. You need to back up a little bit. Number one, Ecclesiastes is part of the history of God's saving work. Part of the development of his covenant in the Old Testament, which he brings uh, more and more information about the coming of the Christ who did come. Read on through Ecclesiastes. Uh, consider the prophetical books, all looking forward to the coming of Christ and the full revelation of the gospel that's set forth to us in the New Testament. This is the background to it. Related to that, number two, keep the whole message of the Bible in view. One way or another, Jesus Christ is the central character of all 39 books in the Old Testament, all 27 books in the New Testament. You will find him there if you look close enough. Because as I said earlier, he's the only person who did not get locked in to the meaningless circle of life. I wish I'd written down the author of this quote, but I failed to do so, so it's anonymous. If the lines of the quests and perplexity which go out from Ecclesiastes are left unbroken and hang in a void, the gospel accepts the task of carrying them through to triumphant assurance. So Ecclesiastes is part of that, in which it has its place. And thirdly, it has its place because it presents a sense of the gravity and seriousness of sin, of rebelling against God, of living as if there is no God, of denying God, of attacking God. The great the general scope and design of this unusual book is to dock, knock down one's self-esteem and our expectation that things will make us fully satisfied. To understand Christ, to understand the gospel as we think of it, the good news, you have to first of all see your sense of sin before a holy God and then humble yourself before Him. I close with this uh, quotation from 
F.B. Meyer, he was a Baptist evangelist and Bible commentary at the late, late 19th century, early 20th century. He wrote, In Christ there is perennial interest. The water that he gives rises up to eternal life. In his love and service there is always satisfaction and blessedness. We need not go outside of him for new delights. And to know him is to possess a secret which makes all things new. If that is not your perspective this morning, all I can do is say get ready for 2024 and another year of boredom and frustration and all kinds of problems. But if you can identify with Meyer wrote what he just said, then I think I can wish you a very happy new year. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Sometimes it's hidden from us. Other times it's right there, John 3.16. Yet we know that you must first confront us with our own sinfulness and need of a Savior. And then, by your grace, you open up our hearts by your Spirit to the glory and the beauty of Jesus. So, Father, be with us as we go into another new calendar year that may be not just a lot of old repetitious stuff, but may we find new delights day after day throughout the year as we seek to fear you and to trust you and to obey you. In Christ's name we pray.